0: I'm Ayelet Waldman.
1: I'm Paul Waldman.
0: This is Boundary Issues.
1: Welcome to Boundary Issues, the podcast where two siblings solve all the world's problems while blaming each other for their own. Before we start today's episode, just a note about the audio. You may hear at certain points some clumping, and shuffling, that was our guest, Monica Potts's very enthusiastic dog, who really wanted to be a part of the conversation. Now let's get to the show.
0: All right, I have a question for you, which has been bothering me for, oh, I don't know. How long have there been cell phones? why in God's name do you have an Android phone, which makes this green nightmare? And every time I try to do a group text, it doesn't work. And people reply to me by myself and not to you. It is such a drag. Why? Why, Paul? Why?
1: Okay. Do you want to know why? It's the same reason that I don't put bumper stickers on my car or oh, wear t-shirts please. with messages on them <laughs> i don't feel a need to communicate to the world and especially to people who are strangers things about me that uh that i want them to to understand as they drive by me on the way to the supermarket
0: but you told me th- because everyone has an this- iphone no, so no, if no. you have an iPhone you're communicating that you're an asshole
1: <laughs> Here's the thing. What is it that an iPhone is supposed to communicate or being within the Apple universe is supposed to communicate to everyone? It's that you're youthful and creative oh, and cool. No. But what it actually it's says that you know is that how you to have use bought a
0: better piece of equipment.
1: What it actually says is that you have bought into one of the most successful marketing campaigns in human oh history created by this trillion-dollar corporation, that this is going to be actually an expression of your true identity. And maybe just it's really that your identity is that you're vulnerable to this kind of corporate manipulation. No, so I, have I an think Android this is phone. the
0: pretension of lack of pretension. That is what we're dealing with here.
1: Yes. I have an Android phone because it's a perfectly good phone. It doesn't say anything about who I am. And – Maybe not caring about whether other people think you're cool is the coolest thing of all.
0: Yes. And you're trying to show <laughs> that you're cool. I'm this is I have to have the last word. Your Android phone is you communicating aggressively that you're so cool you don't need to be cool, which is the worst kind of cool. Now ask me my question.
1: All right. So since today we are going to be talking about rural America, you I yell at are a snobbish coastal elitist (laughs) who looks with contempt on the good folk of the heartland the real americans so i guess my question is why do you hate them so
0: okay first of all i resent the real american thing why am i any less of a real american than some bubba in texas i am just as american as they are i'm more american because i pay more in taxes already with the name one yes number two Abortion rights, um, lack of representation. They're overrepresented in the federal government. Just Donald Trump, general hatefulness, the inability. Like January 6th, Monica, am I in fact correct that rural America is a nightmare? Or do you need to educate me about my biases?
1: Well, before she answers that, why don't I introduce (laughs) our guest? Okay, all right, all right. Monica Potts is a senior politics reporter with 538.com, and she is the author of a book that we are going to be talking about today called The Forgotten Girls, A Memoir of Friendship and Lost Promise in Rural America. And I should say that this is a topic that I've been thinking about a lot because I, too, have a book coming out soon uh, that I wrote with my friend Tom Schaller. Uh, It goes by the somewhat uh, provocative title, white rural rage the threat to american democracy
0: oh my god i'm the snob i'm the snob
1: well (laughs) you know how it goes i i've written this is my fifth book i don't think that i got to choose the title on any of them they were all (laughs) chosen by the publishers for their own reasons anyway thank you monica for joining us
0: and it really is a remarkable book monica it's written with such compassion, and it's it's interesting. It's insightful. I learned something I felt a lot. Paul, take it from here. You asked the first question.
1: Okay. Well, maybe for those people who haven't read the book, you can just kind of offer us a bit of a summary about why you wrote it. This this is a book about your experience growing up in Your hometown in Arkansas, and that of your childhood best friend, whose name is Darcy, and her experiences and the kind of different path that the two of you took. So maybe you could just offer people kind of a brief summary of what that's all about and why you decided you wanted to write it.
2: Thank you guys so much. Thanks for having me. So yeah, I wanted to write the book is I think going back to 2012, when there started to be these studies about this particular group of uh, rural women, especially the least educated white women in America were losing life expectancy, they were living less long, or they were living fewer years than the same cohort a generation before. So this was sort of a population that was moving back. It was maybe it was revealing suffering that had always been there or, you know, bad life expectancies that had always been there, but we could see that people were dying younger and we wanted to kind of get behind what that meant. And so I started following all of these studies and looking at some of the issues. And I really decided that it was a a whole person, like a whole life story. It wasn't just a story about you could say just meth or just opioids or just smoking or just this or just that. This was really the story of how someone's whole life can add up to be different than it might have been under different circumstances or with different opportunities. And I also decided that this was a story about the women I had left behind from my hometown. I grew up in this small town in rural Arkansas. I sort of got out by chance. I always viewed everything that happened in my life as like a mixture of luck and effort. And I wanted to see what might have happened if I hadn't experienced those things and what it was like to kind of stay behind in my hometown. So I went back and just coincidentally, my childhood best friend got back in touch with me on one of my trips home while I was thinking about doing this book. And she was a really good example of how people who can start out in one place can end up in such different places after the decades pass. So that was really the inspiration. And I started working on it, I would say in 2015.
1: It's interesting. You talk about, you mentioned luck and effort, and that was one of the things that really struck me. I think, especially given that my background is different than yours. I was thinking about, as I read your book, the place where I yelled and I grew up, which is a suburb in New Jersey almost everybody we went to high school with ended up going to college. And one of the really striking things about it is that even the mediocrities did fine. You could have been near the bottom of our high school class. And you know maybe you didn't go to Harvard, but you went to college and you probably got a perfectly good job and had perfectly good opportunities. You didn't have to be a superstar. And that's one of the things that struck me in your account of your own progression from this small town to eventually going to a really good college and having a career as a journalist is that so much of it was, and this is not to deny your own intelligence and capabilities and all that, but your friend Darcy seemed like she's just as smart as you were and things just didn't fall the right way. And in order for somebody from where you came from to be successful, it took a lot of luck, not just a little, but a lot.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And for me, it was like a matter of getting on the conveyor belt to opportunity. You know, when I was a teenager, I knew I wanted to go to a good college and I felt that I was, you know, smart. I was a high achiever in high school, but I didn't know really what that meant. I didn't know anybody who went to college who wasn't like a teacher or a doctor or a lawyer. I didn't really know how to translate that into something that would make me happy and sort of find a career that was off the beaten path. And I feel like what leaving Arkansas did for me was just introduce me to a whole new world that allowed me to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. And so it was sort of, it was about being successful, but it was also just about finding my place in the world, which I feel like that was not something you could do from Arkansas as easily. There just weren't as many opportunities. And there was this attitude that you had to be a superstar to go to college or it wasn't worth it, that you were just wasting people's time and you were wasting your own time and you should just get a job. And college was too expensive to do that. I think about that a lot with Darcy, who was smart, and I think in a lot of ways smarter than I was, and definitely she could have done anything she wanted. But there was sort of this kind of split that happened for us in high school where you were either going to go to college or you weren't. And it kind of the bottom was like, even for people who maybe weren't geniuses or whatever, like you could really fall far down. There wasn't like a safety net to catch you. There wasn't like, you couldn't just stay in your hometown and get a good job. Those things didn't exist for the most part. It was, you know, service level jobs and a lot of opportunities for bad things to happen to you, which I think is what happened to my friend a lot.
1: You know, something else I'm wondering about, as a journalist who spent time in Washington and other places, I'm sure that you don't know all that many people in Washington who come from rural small towns. Many, many years ago, you and I were both regular attendees at this these luncheons uh, that took place at a think tank where about 20 or 30 people, liberals and conservatives would get together to talk about issues. It was just sort of an off the record thing. And there was one occasion in one of these luncheons where somehow the subject of people in rural America came up and some arrogant liberal, I don't know, maybe it was even me, I don't even remember. Somebody said
0: something
1: like, oh, isn't it ironic that You know, all these rural people, they talk so much about their values and traditional values. And yet, in these places, you see the highest rates of teen pregnancy and divorce and things like that. And you, Monica, I'm sure you were the only person in that room who actually grew up in a rural place. You said, well, actually, that's exactly why. Because people see around them all kinds of people whose life prospects were damaged by things like getting pregnant when they were teenagers. And they view those traditional values as the thing they can hold on to that might be be the only thing that saves them or their kids from having their own prospects diminished in that way. And I wonder if you, over the years, found yourself in a lot of situations like that, where you were the only one in the room who really understood what it was like in rural America with a bunch of Arrogant Northeastern elitists who have opinions about it but don't really have any idea what they're talking about. Stop
0: insulting your older sister, <laughs> Monica.
2: Yeah, I did. I did. I think it was probably my whole career. I think, I mean, it started really the minute that I left and went to Bryn Mawr and it never really stopped. And I also found myself just in addition to being in places with. Liberals who had these ideas that if there's a tendency to romanticize rural America, I think, and there's a tendency to think of it as, I mean, as somehow the complicatedness of humanity diminishes when people think about rural America and small towns. I don't know why. It's like people are just as complicated and good and bad and ugly and pretty as everywhere else in the world. They're not different in any way. I think that the other thing that happened to me too is that I found myself in very wealthy areas. So I had come from this extremely poor rural place and went to these incredibly, it was some of the wealthiest places in the country for uh, school and then for jobs later on. And so the disconnect was always there. And it took me a long time to figure out how to represent rural America and how to sort of verbalize what I was thinking when people would say things like that. But I think that part of it is just there's a disconnect between how people view things in their own lives and opportunities in their own lives and choices made in their own lives and this kind of inability to imagine what it might be like if you were a person in completely different circumstances faced with those same choices and those same you know opportunities or lack of opportunities so I think there's you know with things like having children young and um, embracing traditional values that might seem like a might seem like a contradiction or just something that doesn't fit together. But if you actually are in it, you can see the ways that those attitudes do go hand in hand, that you're working to, you're relying on these traditional values and these very strict ideas of family and religion and what's right and wrong, because all around you, there's the sense that you could fall apart at any moment. Could you talk a
0: little more, Monica, about that falling apart and the connection? I think what drives... People like me, who Paul described as arrogant, clueless liberals, crazy is, you know, if you're in a 30-year marriage, say, and then someone is lecturing you or lecturing the world about, you know, family values, who's divorced and has, and goes to a church where the pastor has, you know, a history of philandering or whatever, like, where is it? Is it just a matter of defensiveness or, or what is the kind of emotional, if you could hypothesize the emotional connection between the life experience that you yourself is having as opposed to what you see around you or interrelated with what you see around you. And then the expression of that in terms of how you feel about the outside world.
2: I think that it's also kind of mixed with the religious philosophy of evangelicalism, which is that you are very concerned with the way other people live their lives. So it's not just like how you conduct your own self, but it's all you have an idea of how the way the world should work. And it's like partly your job to preach about that and to think about that and to sort of impress your worldview on other people. It's part of your calling. So I think that's part of it too, is that there's this idea that how other people are living their lives is just as important to me as a, as a evangelical Christian as it is to, I mean, I'm playing the role of an evangelical Christian here. I'm not an evangelical Christian, but like, it's just as important to me as how I comport, you know, how I live my own life and how I conduct myself morally and how I can, you know, how the people around me nearest to me who profess the same ideals as me, if they fall, they can, you know, stumble and, ask for forgiveness, but if I see other people that I think are living in a way that shouldn't be, I I feel compelled to say that. So I think that's where a lot of the religion comes in. Also, it's just this, just this idea of the way the world should look, the, I, this idea of the way leadership should look, this idea of the way people in power should look, that when the world doesn't look like that, it scares people and they sort of retreat to these
0: ideas. Do you mean racially, ethnically what do you mean when you say that way that people should look
2: racially, ethnically, but also the way that their lives should look, how they, you know, they should be married, you know, marriage should look one way. And so if you have a president supporting same sex unions, then that's not right. That's not what somebody in power should help make happen. So it's also about values and it's also about the way families should look and the way dads should lead in the family and the way men should lead and workplaces and stuff like that it's an idea of kind of patriarchy and power and the way that the world should be ordered that i think is important to people
0: and is that why we- the trans issue seemed to catalyze like it seemed you know from the outside it seems to catalyze this incredible bubbling of rage and um i feel like that issue in particular seems to be booing up and catalyzing this uh fervor for the the version of MAGA, America, Trump's being president, that kind of thing. Do you think it's overstating it to say that that issue in particular, because of what it means about traditional, the way families should look, the way people should look is particularly dramatic in its effect?
1: Well, I think that, first of all, you can't separate it from the messages people get from the conservative media, especially that they are being told over and over again, this is something that you have to be really angry about and frightened about, and it's really important and If there's a trans girl a hundred miles away who wants to play on her middle school softball team, this is a threat to everything that you value and this is an emergency but I also think that it's true of a lot of people in rural areas who feel in some ways with justification, like the world has kind of passed them by, and the economic opportunities that they used to have are no longer there and culture feels like it is becoming more and more alien and so that's why this this message that you know you're under siege and there are all these very threatening changes can be very very powerful to people and you know that can take a number of different forms it can be about immigration it can be about sexuality one of the interesting things about rural america is that it experiences this constant brain drain Young, ambitious people tend to leave because there just aren't enough opportunities there. And so you have a population that's kind of getting older all the time. And one of the things about older people is that they feel alienated from the world. And the faster the world moves, the more alienated they feel from it. Because, you know, the music you like to listen to when you were younger is no longer on the radio. And, you know, you don't understand what the kids are wearing and what they're doing and the way they talk. And all of that is very alienating. And then it leaves you open to persuasion from political messages that come in and say that, you know, there's this kind of crisis going on and the world is spinning out of control and is being taken over by people who are your enemies and want to destroy you.
0: Monica, so you went back. So what is that like in terms of your experience of these, of that messaging of, I mean, you are a very different person than when you left, right?
2: Yeah, I went back partly because I was going back a lot anyway to research for the book and I found myself not hating it, which was an interesting feeling. And I I felt like I wanted to kind of close the book on that chapter in my life. I wanted to think about where I was from in a new way as an adult with these new eyes and these new experiences. But it was interesting because I actually enjoyed it at first and I didn't... I didn't hate it and I kind of came back with, I felt like we're open eyes and uh, an open mind and wanted to experience it in this new way. And there's a lot I love about where I'm from. But at, the longer I stayed there, the more some of those kinds of things started to wear on me more and more. Some of the attitudes, some of the, I think, unwillingness to think about new, different ideas and to think about different ways of doing things is just very stuck in its ways as a town. And I think that's probably true of a lot of small towns. And so, if you have this romantic idea of going back to your hometown and bringing new energy and new ideas and <laughs> new um, new ways of doing things to help people out or to to kind of revive it or whatever, it's, it's hard. You're going to meet with local opposition and not everybody's going to appreciate your fancy, newfangled city ideas.
1: <laughs> uh, that, that's a question I had, too, because, you know, you came back to Clinton, Arkansas. You were writing about – some of the the issues going on there. You had a big piece in the New York Times about a conflict over the local library. That was a few years ago. And I wonder if when people saw that, did people treat you differently after that? Were they angry? How did that work out?
2: A lot of people were angry. I also got a lot of private messages of like, thank you for writing that. That was, we we need more of that, you know? So I think it was, it was nice to feel like I was standing up for people who don't normally get a voice, but I do think the overwhelming, um, overwhelming attitude was kind of mad at me and that I was a snob. But I think that it, what really surprised me about the library story, which was really what surprised me about being back in a lot of different ways was that here was this town that in the past had always supported the library had gone to great lengths to help build this new library building that had raised money for the library and it had been such a town center it was one of the nicest buildings in town it was one of the only places you could go get free internet you know it's this great gathering place for this community that I remembered growing up had become something that people didn't want to support anymore and they had this idea of government waste and and people in the government making decisions that were bad and we needed to lower taxes and and all of that was focused on the local library I was like this this isn't the quote-unquote government this is somebody you grew up with who ran for your local county council seat like you know this person it's not the government making these decisions it's your neighbors and friends there's no reason to think of it as this distant machiavellian evil body trying to take your tax money for some wasted library you saw it being built you everybody here raised money for it so this idea that this like the idea of anti-government anti-tax sentiment translating to this super local useful resource in town was new for me and i think that was a new phase in politics for me to explore was um it was really surprising to me
1: do you think that is, is something that is happening people, nationally? Because hold on though, it, it, just gonna, I wonder yes, if you think this is how it's going it, to yeah. go.
0: All right, fine. I'll yeah. just sit back. You can talk.
1: <laughs> yeah, I wonder if you think that's something that is that is happening in rural places across the country, where political conservatism has become kind of a much more important emblem of identity. I mean, we know from uh, election results that among white rural voters, the Republican Party has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger margins. And I should say though when Tom and I wrote White Rural Rage, available February 27th from Random House- uh, Oh my God, we we're plugging that,
0: her book, not yours. Shut <laughs> up.
1: We looked at you know county results from all over. And if you look for the places where Donald Trump did the best, they tend to be really small, almost entirely white rural counties. And in some places, he gets 90%, 95%. But it, most of them are not quite like that. And- you know, there's one uh, political organizer we were talking to who said, "You know, if you go to a place that, say, Trump won at 70-30, well, politically, like that's a blowout. That's not even close. Neither party's going to feel like they should bother putting resources into that. But thirty percent of a community, like that's a lot of people. There's plenty of liberals there. But I wonder if you feel like now versus the time when you were growing up." That, that political conservatism is more, uh, more closely tied to one's identity as a rural person than it used to be.
2: Yeah, it absolutely is. And actually there's there's a lot of um, sociological work that I think is showing that now is that people who identify as a rural person identify also as a like political conservative. And that is also being tied up with a bunch of other things, how people view other issues, like whether they should get vaccines. It's all, all these things that are unconnected now are more connected. And I think also that 30% is a lot of people. There are a lot of liberals in a place like a small town, but it's hard to, you're not going to get your way ever. So you're just Always fighting this, you know, that you're always fighting this prevailing conservative sentiment that's become, I would say, more extreme, like the issue with the library, or now you see around the country more and more very conservative people attacking libraries, attacking the books in libraries, attacking schools, attacking what's being taught in schools, wanting more say in their children's education. And being very um, aggressive about that. Those are local institutions that used to be really supported. People loved their local schools. People used to love their local library. I do think you see it translating from national issues to local issues in ways that we haven't really ever before. And I think that those issues will be really important in 2024. They're really motivating for local people, even if they don't necessarily think their school is going down a wrong path. They think other people's schools might be going down the wrong path.
0: Do you think that the people who were so angry about the library, and so especially in the turn of the economy when it seemed like it was was more dramatic, the money being spent on it, than when there was more money in the county coffers, were they just people who never used the library, who read on the internet in their own homes and never saw the value of it? Or were there people who used it and protested it? I think that it was
2: both. I mean, there were a lot of people who never used the library. There are a lot of people who probably didn't read much at all. I think when you look at the numbers of people, Americans who read for people who write, it's very sadly low number how many books people read a year. So
0: um, Sometimes I feel like I write books for like seven Jewish ladies in great neck and that's basically (laughs) it.
2: So I think it was a combination, but there are people who use services that they think should be discontinued. So the recycling was one, the county had a grant from the federal government to do recycling. So the city did it for free, The a couple of the cities in the county did it for free. And people were like, well, we should just get our tax money back instead. And it's like, why? why? It's not your tax money. (laughs) probably california and new york's tax money just put your recycling out and let the city pick it up it's not a big deal you know it's not that much money you're not getting any tax dollars back especially because you're talking about a population with a a really low um median income so it's these they're not funding almost anything that they're using as far as tax dollars go it's like a small amount
0: all right paul you may speak
1: okay thank you Uh, i appreciate that monica you mentioned a little While ago, about people having this kind of simplistic idea about uh, what rural America is that it's sort of gentle and idyllic. You know, life is not easy, but uh, it's kind of quiet. And I spent a good deal of time as I was writing. Book that I wrote with uh, thinking about the kind oh of my God, um, the, the rural ethos and what what makes up this kind of ideology about what rural America is, how it gets expressed, how it gets communicated, and things like country music. And well, one of the things that is really I think striking is that we do have this idea that it's idyllic, and you find that in a lot of like let's take an example: Lifetime Christmas movies, which are there's kind of a standard plot line, which is that some sort of career woman from the city through some set of circumstances gets stranded in a small rural town and finds that that's where, you know, people really do have good values. And she meets this hunky rural guy who, you know, Christmas she, dumps tree her, salesman. Yeah, she dumps her <laughs> shallow boyfriend from back in the city and finds that life here is really, really, really good. And you know, I think rural people complain a lot with some justification that, that in popular culture, they get misrepresented, they get looked down on, you know, there's like Cletus the Slackjaw, Yogel on The Simpsons, there's a lot of that. But there's also a lot of, a lot of presentations that, that show rural America as this kind of wonderful, idyllic place where the values are true, people are honest. But one of the things that doesn't get talked about a lot is that life in rural America today, especially in low-income rural places like the place you came from, is just full of trauma. And people have, you know, not only were they the target of uh, the opioid crisis, but people have poor health outcomes, people have poor job prospects, all kinds of things that make life really, really hard and not so idyllic. I wonder if you've thought about that contrast between the image that a lot of people like to portray, especially in politics, as, you know, small town values, this is what we need, and the actual realities of people's lives.
2: I think that. One of the issues is just that people always want a simpler life. Like life is really hard in America right now in a lot of ways, especially for uh, the youngest Gen X and older millennials and people who watched, they have this ideal, like idea of what America used to be like, that you could easily buy a house and easily get a job and earn what you deserved. And so I think there's this sense of going back in time. And to some extent, rural America represents an easier past, too, because we used to be more rural. So there's this idea that you're going back in history as well. What Is always kind of really surprising to me as a person who grew up in a town of 2,500 and then moved to New York City after college is that I always found that the stereotypes of rural America were true in cities, that your neighbors watched out for you. You had friends who helped out, like if there was an elderly person on your block, younger people would probably like sweep their stoop for them. I used to live next to a corner store that was open 24 hours and the people who worked there always watched out for me. And when I came off the subway late at night, they would always wave at me and make sure I was okay. So I I feel like you get a sense of neighborliness and watching out for each other in cities way more than you do in small towns where people live farther apart and you're never like walking on the street <laughs> and you're always in your car. My experience of rural America was that it was very loud. I lived in the middle of town and there was this five lane highway that went through town. And so I always heard cars driving by and trucks driving by. And so I think that it's just a an old idea that we have that we haven't been able to shake people should recognize what is great about cities too, and maybe counteract that a bit. There's another aspect of rural America that at least is as true as uh, go, going back to Shirley Jackson writing the lottery that, you know, it's this, you live in a bubble where people kind of know your history and judge you and, and don't treat outcasts very well, you know? And so I think There's a dark side to rural America that doesn't get explored, and a great side to city life that we don't really have a firm cultural idea of. That I wish could change. I mean, maybe Hallmark movies could play in reverse, (laughs) where somebody
0: leaves their small town. (laughs) It's interesting you talk about that because that was my my experience too. I mean, I always say that about New York. People's world in New York is very circumscribed to a number of blocks, but within that those blocks, like you know people and you see the same people and you know the stores and it it does satisfy this craving that we have for community and for connection. And I do think like that it's worth touching on this idea that we've been hearing so much about of loneliness. And do you think that what you're describing in rural America right now, that being in your car all the time, if you shop now at like a big box, it's really different than shopping at like a little corner store where you know, everybody Do you think that loneliness plays a part in the kind of effects that you saw, the deterioration of, you know, opportunity back in your hometown and in other areas like it?
2: Oh, I absolutely do. Yeah, the downtown in my hometown is there's a few businesses there, but they're not shops that there's a like one shop they're not it's not really full of shops that you would go in full of banks that you would go in on saturday and there used to be this tradition in farming communities where people went into town on saturday and they went to the bank and deposited their money and went to the store and you know and that Th- those things really did happen and there would be town square dances and, and things like that. And Now there's a Walmart at the end of the highway and there's a Dollar General next to an empty old Dollar General building that used to have the Dollar General in it. Uh, there's fast food where the instead of local restaurants where there used to be, there is way more isolation than there used to be and less of a sense of civic life than there used to be. And I think that absolutely contributes to this. And that also when the connections that you had to other people. And when services, basic basic infrastructure was more robust, you knew how the tax dollars affected your downtown and you knew how tax dollars affected things that everybody relied on, like, you know, the fire trucks and and the schools. And, you know, I think now there's more of a sense that you're just kind of on your own, that you have to worry about taking care of everything in your own world and everyone else is just also left to their own devices. So I I do think that that has happened and that's a result of just a lot of years of disinvestment um, and a lot of years of increasingly isolated living that has to do with how we built the world and how we built the communities that are like the ones I grew up in.
1: And yet the idea that rural places are where people take care of each other and watch out for each other is still so important to that ideology. I'm thinking of controversy over the Jason Aldean song, Try That in a Small Town. It painted this picture of the city as this terribly threatening place, full of violence and mayhem. And people were going to bring that urban mayhem to small towns, which then had to be met with a violent response. But also as part of the refrain in the chorus is, we take care of our own. And when The controversy erupted questions about race and things like that. That was the response of both Jason Aldean himself and some of his defenders was that, oh, it's just about people in small towns taking care of each other, which was kind of trying to put aside the nightmarish picture of the city that was the foundation of that, and which people, by the way, get on Fox News and conservative talk radio all the time. That is a message that is constantly being sent that cities are this, you know, kind of horrific, nightmarish places. And you should just be afraid of anything that comes from there. And I should mention also, this reminds me, I had a little conflict with Doug Burgum, the governor of North Dakota. People may not remember. He ran for president. And (laughs) um, he's kind of an interesting guy, not like super ideologue. He is from a small town in North Dakota, and he was very successful, started a software company. It got bought out by Microsoft, made him a billionaire so but when he ran for president his whole campaign was based on small town values and if you watch the video and that he put out and his ads they're all about how we need somebody with small town values and we all we've heard that many times before we know what that's supposed to represent and so i wrote a piece in the washington post saying that Actually, small town values may not be all that helpful if you want to be president. And maybe big city values might be more helpful. You need to learn how, if you grew up in a city or live in a city, to deal with lots of different kinds of people. Cities are constantly changing. Being able to to accommodate to that may be a skill that might be useful in a president. And a couple of days after that column appeared, Bergam's campaign sent out a fundraising email linking to it and quoting from it. And the title of the fundraising email was, They Hate Rural America. Um, <laughs> that that I think is something that, that I also think is important to understand, that there's there are political forces and media forces that are constantly telling people in rural America, not only that their lives are the ones that are the most valuable and they're the people who have, who have the best values, but also that they're under assault and they're from the people real America. outside. Yes, they are the real America and people from outside – absolutely despise them and are trying to destroy them.
0: Which I'm not helping, clearly. <laughs> you know, you know. I'm thinking about this one town that I want to tell you guys about. And just in terms of like the power of a single human being. So there's this tiny town, I think it's named called Hamilton in Missouri. There's a woman there named Jenny Doan. In 2008, she, her husband was, um, I believe, a worker to manufacturing. And he lost his job. And they were facing a financial crisis, and she had done some quilting. I know we're back to quilting, but it's all I do nowadays. And her kids bought her this machine called a long-arm quilting machine, which allows you to people to send you quilts and you do this computerized stitching on them. It gets those like those swirly stitches that you see on a quilt. They said, "We'll buy this for you, and you'll make money doing this, and it's a way that you'll make money. And that has turned in to something called the Missouri Star Quilt Company, which is a massively successful company. Massive. I mean, I don't know how much they're worth, but I'd be surprised if it wasn't in the hundreds of millions of dollars. But what's really interesting and what I want to talk about is their town was a wasteland before. There were no stores on the, like every store had gone out of business on the main strip. And it was such a wasteland that it, cost less for them to buy a building to house her long arm than it cost to buy the long arm. So now I believe it's 17 buildings in that town that they own and they operate. I think she said it's she employs like 450 people in the town and in the surroundings. And they have completely revitalized that town and its surrounding towns with this really traditional Americana business. And I feel like when I look at that, they've got, I think, seven kids and it's a family business. And it is this kind of romantic quintessential fantasy about what rural America is, but using all those big city business values to create what has is essentially a rural fantasy. And Paul, I was actually going to say that you and I should go we should go to this town in Missouri and just experience it. I'm dying to see it. Plus, I, I understand they have very nice fabrics.
2: Yeah, you see that a lot, actually, is that the small towns willing to sort of welcome that ki- those kinds of new things or have that, those innovations or sort of organize around the arts or organize around you know, welcoming, welcoming immigrants. They are really thriving. But it's the small towns that sort of don't have that organizing idea or that organizing person or the not capitalizing on their advantages that I think are struggling the most.
1: Some of the rural areas that are doing best are the ones that have some kind of recreation that will draw in tourists and that you can right. build an economy around that. But some places just don't don't have much. One of the things that I find so infuriating is places like – we did some reporting in West Virginia. And if you look at the whole story of coal – in Appalachia which is has been a curse and not a blessing you know nevertheless people there will just kind of cling to any suggestion that coal might be able to be revived and you know Donald Trump comes in 2016 to West Virginia and he puts on a hard hat and he says to the crowd get ready all you miners cuz you're going to be working your asses off and of course it didn't happen
0: but the idea the of it is really powerful because yes, the idea that's a is, job. In,
1: the idea is incredibly powerful because it was a job. It was a job with benefits. It was a job that would allow a person who didn't have a college education to make a middle-class living. But today in America, there are more people who work at Panda Express than who work in the entire United States coal industry. And it was a lie. When he told them those jobs were coming back and when Hillary Clinton said, we're going to put a lot of coal companies out of business, she got in huge trouble, but she was telling the truth. But it, it's hard in a, in places in Appalachia to tell people like there's got to be something better. You know, you're going to tell a, a 55-year-old ex-coal miner that he's going to learn to code. You know, yeah. he knows that's I mean, that just seems
0: like the biggest lie of all re you know, we're going to do adult education. I mean, that just se- like it's hard enough to get that job when you're 30, right, to get that job when you're 55 and you have limited education and you don't have the kind of access to the to the computer. I mean, I, that just feels like that feels like arrogance coming from above. And that feels like cultural elitism. If we can just get them into the library and get them some coding classes, then they won't mind the fact that they have lost this income generating, lifestyle generating business. I just want to say one thing, and then maybe Paul, you'll wrap it up and ask Monica our last question. I listen almost exclusively to country music, which I bet Paul, you do not. So this arrogant liberal can tell you a whole lot about country music. My daughter has a radio show in Poughkeepsie where she goes to her, yes, arrogant elitist college, Vassar, grade school by the way that's called sweetheart of the rodeo and it was initially called three years ago when she started it was called you only think you don't like country it's this love letter to country music so in that music which is so amazing is a kind of there there is the side of it that's like rural america and the sort of dream of rural america but then there's a side like represented by artists like tyler childers who actually has songs about what cole Did to him and his family and his community. So um, I want to encourage everybody, go listen to some country music because it is, I don't know if it's going to put you in touch with rural America, but it's going to be a good time.
1: Well, I can say we are definitely going to do an episode about country music and its political and uh, semiotic meanings because I have a lot of things to say about that. Um, (laughs) But uh, maybe, maybe then a good question to ask is, is it possible to find or create a rural culture that is not built on myths and is not that kind of belligerent Jason Aldean version that's about uh, antagonism toward people who live in cities, but really is something that helps people find what's great in the places that they come from and take it towards some kind of more hopeful future?
0: What are you going to do if she just says no, and that's the end of our podcast?
1: <laughs> then, If that's the truth, then that's the truth.
2: I'm not going to say no. I mean, so I'll say one thing about Jason Aldean, uh, which is very important to me, which is that he's from a city. Macon, Georgia is a city. Yes, that's and, true. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's, a, <laughs> it's a pretty large city on the scale of American cities. It's not a small city. So that's something that matters to me. And I think that that's also kind of important to remember that he's catering to an audience, not really speaking from any kind of authentic truth, the way that somebody like Tyler Childers does, who's really great about that. I think you see it happening in places like Fayetteville, Arkansas, and places like some college towns around rural America is this celebration of, you know, heritage folk art and uh, the contributions that various communities have made to Southern culture over the years and what it means to be Southern and this kind of like investigation of the history of, you know, the use of farmland and traditional music and traditional artisans and where they, you know, where those arts come from and who's, who we should celebrate. And so, and the diversity of that and that, you know, that African-American heritage of that and the native American heritage of a lot of those things. So I think there's a lot of, there is a lot of movement in the across the South to be more honest about what Southern heritage is and what it means and what should be celebrated about it. So I think you do, I, I think you do see that in a lot of places and it's, it's really great. And so taking back, the real narrative to what it really means and what it really is and who has really contributed to it over the centuries, I think is really important. Well, all right,
0: well that Monica, is a wonderful you. note
1: to end on.
0: And thank you so much, Monica. This has been so fascinating. And I really, I want to encourage everybody. Look, like Monica says, writing is a brutal business and not that many people read and libraries are, as you know, we all know exactly from your piece are struggling so Go buy this book in a books, ideally an independent bookstore, because they, you know, because that's a better experience and you're helping a human being. Go buy this amazing book by Monica in your local bookstore and support a writer because we need it, too.
1: And for those who joined and go us go buy I will...
0: rural, White Rural Rage by my brother, <laughs> pre-order it, blah, that's, blah, blah.
1: That's <laughs> not what I was going to say. I was going to say for those who joined us late- Monica Potts' book is called The Forgotten Girls, A Memoir of Friendship and Lost Promise in Rural America. And yes, you should buy both of those books. All right. Thank you very much. What
0: about my 13 books? Let's talk about that another time. Thank you, Monica. (laughs) Thank you guys so much.
1: Boundary Issues is produced and edited by Paul Waldman. Our music is by Zeke Shabon. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at waldmanpodcast at gmail.com. And this is a listener-supported podcast. So if you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash boundaryissues. See you next time.